And we're going to be returning to our series that we really st- we started this back in September of last year, Alpha and Omega, God from Beginning to End, uh, this morning. Um, if you'll remember, we started that. We, the intent was to look at God uh, who's always been, who always will be, and who is right now, seeking to know Him, right? So, so we started in Revelation. We saw Him uh, state, I am the Alpha and the Omega, God from beginning to end, first and the last, and all those things. And that sent us back to Genesis, and we began to see God working from creation. And really, He was there before the beginning, and in the beginning, He did this work. And then we paused and took time for Advent, but in our Advent series, we really looked to see how Jesus was the solution or the fulfillment of all, uh, it was God's plan, he was God's plan to set everything right that went wrong with Adam and Eve and their sin and rebellion. Today, we're going to move into a new section of the study. So, so that was God creates. We're moving into a new section of the study called God covenants. We're going to be walking through the covenants uh, through, throughout Scripture. So, so the, the point, though, I, I don't want us just, we're going to develop a biblical doctrine, a, a view of how God has been working in all time. But I don't want us just gaining doctrinal perspective or doctrinal knowledge for the sake of saying we know something or have some piece of information. It's not something for us to just be able to sit around and debate other people over and say, oh, no, man, covenant theology, that's the way to go. Dispensationalists are crazy. That's not really true. Uh, and, and it's not the point of why we're going to look at the covenants. The, the reason we're going to look at this, and, and really the whole reason for the story or, or for this series starts in the reality of where we've been, not just as a church, but just as people in general. If you, can, if you think about where we've been over the last three years, I, I think I can safely say this, that in my lifetime, I've only been around 50 years, so I'm not saying in all the history of the world, but in my lifetime, in the last 50 years, I would suggest that these last three years have been some of the most chaotic, most frustra- filled with the most frustration and vitriol that the, the, things that we, the things that we had in place that made us feel comfortable suddenly are called into question. People don't know who to trust anymore. There's all kinds of challenge that we face. I mean, every, every aspect of our lives, everything from politics, religion, health, social concerns, financial concerns, there, were, there was even deep hurt within our own church body that we experienced over these last three years that caused lots of chaos. And, and, and I realized something. I realized something in that process is that the reason we felt so chaotic, not just, not just us, but why it was so, because we have lost sight of the fact that God has always been about his work. And it really came home to me, it really became very personal to me last summer as I was preparing to watch dad die. As, as my dad is, he's been sick for a number of years, we know it's coming. Uh, there's a number of conversations, a number of different things, that, a number of different opportunities to talk with him and spend time with him over, over the last five or so years. And probably in my lifetime, that was the closest my dad and I had ever been. And then here we're coming to a time over the summer where his death is imminent. And that brought up, that raised in me um, questions, doubts, concerns, um, I wanted to know something. I wanted to be made certain of something. I wanted to have information. I wanted to have facts. I wanted to have, I wanted to have a certainty instead of know that I know the God who does have those things and holds that information. 
You see, I wanted to trust my knowledge. I wanted to live by what I know, not by the one in whom I trust. And I, I realized that while this is happening all around us on this grand scale that people are seeking, I mean, we live in an information age. Every answer you want, you can go and Google. So when I would sit down with people, I would always have to figure out what piece of information or what source of information are they believing so that I could interact in a conversation with them to help them see that the people that they were so angry with or so hurt by or so frustrated about, so concerned about, weren't crazy. They were just listening to and sourcing different information. They had a different source of truth. It was crazy. Because we've become so dependent upon what we know, the information that we can hold and prove and see in writing, instead of trusting the God who holds all knowledge. It became even more, I, I became even more convinced that this is, this is the right thing for us as God's people to do, to spend time looking at him being God from beginning to end. Not simply so we can know the doctrines, but so that we can grow in our faith in those doctrines of those doctrines, of the God that those doctrines point us to. And so that's what we're doing. That's why we're doing this series. And so as we looked at the creation, we saw him at work. We saw him forming and shaping, always being sovereign, always being the God we've always known him to be. And we're going to continue to do that as we walk now through these covenants. So without any further ado, let's just jump right in. We've got one whole verse to read today. Um, to really just set the stage and to help us see why this is such an important part of, an important piece of understanding who God is, who he's always been, who he always will be, and who he is right now, giving us reason to trust him. It's going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The word says, These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, or made the earth and the heavens. Let's pray. Father, help us. I know in many, in many ways I'm fighting against a, a cultural perspective and wrestling with a cultural phenomenon that we are able to know something just at the, just, just pulling up Google and just asking a question. We're, we're able to feel certain in what we can know. We're not used to not knowing. Help us, help us grow in these things, Father, to trust you more, to lean into you more, to depend on you more, and to find our peace and rest in who you are and what you're doing and what you know, even when we're left not knowing. Help us, Father, to grow in, in our living by faith as your people. And I pray that through your word today, you'd help us to see that you've always been at work and you're still working and you will, you will finish what you started. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we do when the, when, when the world we live in has, has, has lost any sense of stability? What, what do we do? I mean, what, what has been your reaction over the last three years as, as we approach this? Am, am I crazy in thinking that many of us just sought to f- figure out which doctor was the most the, the most uh, truthful one or, or which medical scientists or, or who had the right information? Am I, am I wrong to think that we were just turning on Fox and CNN or researching Google ourselves because we decided we couldn't trust either of them? Am I, am I wrong to, 
to, to think that that's what's been going on or that's what we've all done. What happens? Who do we look to when everything that we felt certain in before is suddenly uncertain? How many of us consider God the Alpha and Omega and look to Him with certainty? I, I think, I, think I, know, I know what we intend in our hearts. I know what we long to do in our hearts, and I know we know the right answer because we're all sitting here in this church. No, we know the right answer. We can answer the question, Jesus, it's, that's the answer, Jesus. I, I know we know that. But sometimes our actual theology, the actual thing we believe is proven by our actions more than what we say or we could answer on a, on a test. When the systems and structures that we've built that give us some sense of comfort, some sense of security, some sense of, of strength and ability to stand with confidence, when they fail us, what do we do? Do we really look to the God who is absolutely, always has been, always will be, and is right now, one who we can depend on? Do we look to Him and trust Him? I think in many ways that's why we were given the Bible. So that we would know the God who is, and we would know him by what he does and what he's done. In, in, many, in, in many cases, I think, that's, I think that's the whole intent of why Moses is writing. He's writing to these, to these Israelites, this, this people that he's leading in, in the desert, and he's telling them who God is and what God's done. And he doesn't start with them in Egypt. But he goes all the way back to the beginning and he shows how God created. And he comes to this verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. He comes to this verse and something, something significant happens in this verse. A couple of different significant things happen in this verse. There's a transition, a, a, a turning of perspective. Everything that happened in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is a chronological flow, a chronological explanation. Here's the six days of creation, and on the seventh God rested. There's this chronological movement. We've studied them. You can go back and listen to that part of the series. In chapter 2, verse 4, he turns and transitions, and he's about to begin to tell the story of creation, not with, not with time as the, as the binding force of the story, but with the creation of the man and woman at the center. So that as he begins to explain God creating, that the man and the woman become the central focus. They become elevated and, and drawn out to show the, the special nature, the special purpose, the special place that God has for them in the creation. But as soon as he does this, in the very introduction of this transition that's about to take place, something else significant happens. Moses goes from referring to God with the Hebrew word Elohim, which is God. <laughs> he adds to that a name. Not a title, a name. Lord God. And you can see it in your English translations. We've actually looked at this when we've, when we've worked through the Psalms before. Uh, I think virtually every English translation of the Bible does this when it's seeking to signify, when the translators are seeking to signify the proper name of God. There is a capital Lord. So if it's Lord with lowercase letters, that's, that's like Adonai, that's Lord, supreme ruler, things like that. But, but when the word is capitalized, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now, some people would pronounce it Jehovah. There's the, the pronunciation is actually lost because 
the, the Hebrew people quit using it at all, and they would replace it with the word Adonai. So, so actually, when I took my Hebrew classes, our Hebrew professor would, would be reading along from the Hebrew, and he'd come to the Hebrew word Yahweh, and he would say Adonai instead. And in fact, that was the way we were expected to translate it, because that was the, that was the Masoretic text way. That was the way that they, were, they would, would have read it. So, so anyway, they, we've lost the pronunciation, but, but there's a significance that, that Moses draws in this name. That Moses uses this name alongside the title. And, and I know it's easy to say, well, why is that such a big deal? But, but let me just show you how, how distinct it becomes when you, when you look at it. In chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, God is referenced 36 times. Elohim, 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 Elohim. He is the actor. He's the producer. He's the one. He's the source. Everything is coming from Elohim, right? It's, a, it, 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 it's definitely de- demonstrating that God, the divine, is the divine actor. He's the one doing everything, and, and the creation is his product. Man and woman, the, 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 um, the, the crown jewel of his creation, if you will, still a product of Elohim. Then when he comes to chapter 2 and he turns and he now begins to, to, to focus on the creation story from the perspective of the man and woman, he introduces this, title, this, this name now to the title Yahweh Elohim. And, and, and I believe, and in fact, all the way through chapter 2, there's 10, 11, I'm sorry, there's 11 references in chapter 2, and every time God is referenced, he is referenced as Yahweh Elohim. Lord God. And in fact, even into chapter 3, when, which, which really form a, a unit in this book of the Bible, uh, even into chapter 3, every time Moses, who is narrating the story, references God, he is referencing him as Yahweh Elohim. And, and, and the only time he's not in chapter 3 is when the serpent is referencing God. Did God really say that? Why do you think God would keep that tree off limits from you? So, so the serpent doesn't use the name. Now, we don't want to draw too big a conclusion because in the next chapter, chapter 4, Eve, he does the same thing as he, as he references what Eve says. But there's a significant thing happening in that in chapter 1, it's all Elohim, it's all God. And in chapter 2, as we, as we begin to see God interact and relate to man and woman, it's no longer just this divine being, but it's Yahweh. And there's a reason for that. Because Moses wants his people, who he's writing to, the Israelites, the the people that have just been led out of Egypt, he is wanting them to see that God the Creator is the great and glorious covenant maker. God the Creator is the great and glorious covenant maker. Elohim is Yahweh. Yahweh is Elohim. They are one in the same. The God who created the heavens and the earth is the same God who spoke to Moses from a burning bush, who commissioned him to go back into Egypt to deliver the people who were in slavery, who were then surprised and impressed by God's power to bring uh, plagues, to, to, to bring judgment on Egypt so that they could leave. And then on the way out, when they are being chased by the Egyptian army, the most powerful army of the day, it's the same God who then split the seas, allowed them to go through, and then destroyed the army. 
The God who they know, Yahweh, is the same God who used his power to deliver them, is the same God who used his power to create all things. They owe their very existence in, in every way, in, in not, just in, not just in deliverance from Egypt, but for sucking air at all. They owe their very existence to this God. He is not just their deliverer, he is their creator. And so when they stood at the base of Mount Sinai and saw the lightning and heard the thunder and saw the power that was, that was so evident, and they said, Moses, well, we're scared to death. You talk to us. We, if we hear from God, we're going to die. That was, that was the reality. And Moses wanted, us, wanted them to see that this is the powerful God who's created all things. It's the same as the powerful God, the great and glorious God who's entered into covenant with us. And we can see this begin to unfold even more clearly in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, so, so Moses, let me, let me give you a little background because we're about to step into the middle of the context. Moses is, is out shepherding sheep. He's left Egypt. He's, he's shepherding sheep and he sees this burning bush and he approaches the bush and he hears God say, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. He approaches it and God says, go to Egypt and Argues with God a little bit, which is not, that's not advisable, but he did it. He tried. God still sends him back. And so now Moses is like, well, who am I going to say sent me, right? Like, this is where we're picking up. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the, the God of, I'm sorry, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now we miss it in the English, because we just read Lord and just went right on by. But is that Lord capitalized? Say to them, I am the Lord. Say, that I, I am has sent me to you. Say to this people, the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Jacob, the God of, has sent me. See, God is equating. God is, is, is equating the, the Hebrew word hayah, which is I am. It's a, it just means be, exist, hayah, and Yahweh. And it sounds, to us, I mean, it would sound almost similar, but, or, or almost identical, but there's this, this expression that God is using. I am, I exist, tell them Yahweh has sent you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The, I, the, the title Elohim clearly demonstrates, and it was a word used almost generically. When we, when we use the word God, we can use it in a generic sense, or we can use it in a proper name sense. The same for the word Elohim. Could have been used generically, could have been used specifically, but Yahweh brings with it an intimacy of relationship. This is the God who sent Moses in to get us. This is the God who, who then led us behind Moses, led us out of Egypt. This is the God who we stood in front of the mountain and saw his power expressed that, that caused us to quake in our boots. This is the God, and he is the God who created all things. This is this God. Our God, God uh, that created, the God, God who is creator, is the great and glorious covenant maker. Now, I know right now, initially, okay, well, that's good for Israel. Why does that matter to me? We're getting there. But let's, let's just consider what it means that this God who created all things 
is making covenants with his creation. Now just consider that for a minute. What does he have to gain in it? Why would he do that? He's not obligated to in any way. Why is he going to make an agreement with anybody? Why not just demand everyone bow to him? You see, we begin to see the nature of this creator, this powerful creator, this powerful, this great and glorious covenant maker. We begin to see something of his nature. Because a covenant is not the same as a contract. You see, a lot of people would say, oh, a covenant, contract, kind of the same thing. It's just, you know, there's agreements being made between two parties, and so it, it, it binds them together in some way. But a covenant's different. And, 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 and the reality is, is well, the, the reality is that covenants have been written on, des- described, defined in a number of different, different ways. But, but I would define a covenant in, in, in two ways. And I brought these, co- these definitions from... Uh, people who are way smarter than me, who have studied this uh, at much deeper, much longer length than I have. But first is from Tom Schreiner. He defines a covenant this way, a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Well, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like a contract. Except that a contract, I, I can go and, and sign a contract, I can sign a lease in an apartment and never meet, never be concerned about, never consider, never be considered by the person who owns that property. In fact, some of these properties, you don't even, you're not even dealing with the owner of the property. You're dealing with a property manager. You're dealing with an agent of theirs. There's no real relationship. There's an association, but no real relationship. And Tom Schreiner, he's a New Testament theologian, a, a professor at Southern Seminary. Uh, he defines this as a covenant or a chosen relationship. He specifies that the chosenness, it's intentional, it's purposeful. There's a real intimacy, an involvement. And, and there's promises that are made to, to someone, to, to, a, to the other party. I promise this. And, and, and the reception of that promise re- response is expectation. There's, there's binding promises that, that each person or each party in the covenant makes. And he uses marriage as probably the, the most common example that we're familiar with. There's a marriage covenant that takes place when a man and a woman stand and make vows to one another. It's a chosen relationship. They're choosing to be there. Even in the day, like in Bible times, when, when marriages weren't chosen by both parties, right? When, when a man would see a woman and say, oh, I like that woman. I want to marry her. He'd go, and there's still a choosing. There's still an election to the relationship. I want this relationship. So he'd go to the father. He'd say, hey, here's the bride price. Boom, here, here's the marriage. So here they are, this chosen relationship, and they would still make promises to one another, to loyalty, to faithfulness, to those kind of things to commit to one another. And so that's, that's a picture of a covenant. But, but at, at the establishment of the covenant, something happens. Because they're not related to one another by blood, but they're actually bound by something more significant. Right? In fact, in, in, in terms of biblical terms, God's saying the two become one. There's a union forge that's deeper than blood and intended to be longer lasting than just a contract. There's a, a special thing that takes place. Uh, 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 Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam, also professors at Southern Seminary, they've written this master work, this massive work even, uh, called Kingdom Through Covenant. And in it, they define covenant this way. They write, a relationship between two parties involving permanent and serious commitments of faithful Loyal love, obedience, and 
trust, a relationship between two parties involving permanent and serious commitments of faithful, loyal, love, obedience, and trust. And the reason I wanted to compare these two or bring these two two definitions is because they both emphasize the importance of the relationship. They both emphasize that the parties involved making having something binding uh, put on them, some expectation as a result of the covenant. But one emphasizes the promises made. The other emphasizes the attitudes behind them, faithful, loyal love, obedience, and trust. And so, so clearly, in biblical terms, we would see a covenant with God who is not like us. He's the one who has all the power, who, who, who has been completely wronged. We could see easily that from his perspective, as he enters into covenant, that it's he that it's expressing faithful, loyal love. Not that we are not supposed to, but he clearly is going to. But we are to be obedient and trust him. In fact, what's interesting, when you turn to Ephesians 5 and you begin to understand marriage in a gospel perspective, the husband loving the wife as Christ loved the church, faithful, loyal, Love, the wife submitting to her own husband as unto Christ, obedient faith. This is what a covenant relationship is supposed to look like. There's an intimacy, a closeness, a connection, a union that's forged. It's never to be diminished or separated. The God who created He's not obligated, he's not required, doesn't have to do this. But we begin to see his nature revealed. Because a creation that would reject him, a cre- yeah, a cre- creatures that would reject him, that would rebel against him, and yet he enters into covenant relationship with them. This is huge. And in fact, it's so huge. It's so, in- it- it's so significant. That it's hard to read the Bible. It's hard, to, it, it, it's hard to, to, to look and understand even what's happening in the Scripture when you disconnect it from the covenants that God is making with people. In fact, one of the primary things that we have to do when we begin to read the text, when we begin to read the Scriptures, understand what covenant we're in the midst of so that we can understand how to apply it to our lives. So, for example, we read in the prophets. Let's, let, let's just consider something from the prophets. When, when the prophets are speaking to Israel and talking about God is, is going to bring judgment and he's going to divorce them, he's going to, going to end that covenant, as, as ones who are part of the new covenant, we would recognize the principles that are, there, that are there, but not apply those verses directly to ourselves. We're so guilty, though, of taking taking verses out of the Bible, slapping them up on the side of a, a, a bumper sticker or a coffee cup, but putting them on a t-shirt, putting them on a sign in our house, making ourselves feel good when, when they don't really mean what we said they meant because we're not taking into context what the covenant that God spoke them within. So when God says in Deuteronomy that, hey, if, if my people who hear my voice would humble themselves and call on my name, who's he speaking that to? That's a popular one. We just ripped that right out of the context. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to a rebellious, stiff-necked Israel. And it's not that there's not a principle for us as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus. But to apply that with the same weight and same force as, as, as the nation of Israel, we're, we're missing 
the point because we've ripped it out of its covenantal position, covenantal purpose. So we have to understand it. We have to see this. And that's why we are studying it. Because really what happens is, as you read the Bible, you, you can see it's, it's easy to see that the covenants, they, they provide the framework for us to see who God is and what God's doing. And when we quit looking at who God is and what God's doing, we get what we've had for the last three years. I've got to make something happen. I've got to bring peace. I've got I to bring stability. I, 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 can, I can bring change to the world. Not if you're working against God, you can't. Not if you're working outside of his covenant promises, you can't. So the, the, the Bible is so much more than a book of stories. And, and, and sometimes, and, and, and trust me, don't, don't hear me speaking negative, because we worked hard, we searched long and hard to find good uh, children's curriculum to train and teach our children with. The, the Gospel Project is a great, a, a, a great uh, children's curriculum. And they do a good job of trying to tie all of this into the covenant flow. But oftentimes, if we're not careful, all we're going to do is look at a story in the Bible. So I think this morning they, they studied on Esther. We could separate that totally out from God's covenantal work. There's his promises of protection for Israel. We can take Esther's story out, and just it's just a story. And we just approach the Old Testament as a bunch of stories. They don't provide any kind of confidence. They don't, they don't bring to us any kind of sense of that God's always been there, always working. Even when it seems like all is lost, God is still working, purposefully allowing it, even causing it to bring discipline and to bring about his will. But we pull it out of that, 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 that covenantal context and we lose sight that God is still God. So the Bible is so much more than a, a book of stories. It's so much more than a system of doctrines. This one, I think, I, think I, I could say in our church, this is, this is one we, we, should, we would struggle against. Because oftentimes we approach the Bible simply as a book of systematic theology. And we're just trying to understand the right doctrines to hold so that we can feel good about our positions and our doctrinal perspectives. The Bible, it, it, it's filled with doctrines. It's filled with theological perspectives. It, it does provide a, a, a systematic theology to believe. But it's so much more than just a system of doctrines or a book of stories. And others... Look at the Bible as a book of rules to form societies by. Oh, I got so many examples flooding in my head. I'm trying to choose carefully which ones I. I'll just use this one. So, Jordan Peterson is a psychologist, not a Christian, but he's a guy who a lot of Christians listen to, and they talk. I, I hear it almost every time his name comes up. Boy, he's so close, though. You know when close counts? Horseshoes and hand grenades. Hand grenades because you don't have to hit the target. I mean, you still kill somebody. I, I, I didn't watch it kill somebody, but I've thrown hand grenades, and you don't have to. You just get close. It's, it, it, it'll do the job. Horseshoes because you can still score. He's not a Christian, but now he's teaching books of the Bible. Christians are actually sitting around him, listening to him. I've seen videos of him standing on stages in a church. And, and then saying, hey, this guy is a guy to listen to. What are you thinking? There's lots of stuff he says that I agree with. I, I think that, that culturally, I think he's, he's, I think he's seeing things. He can see all the things that are wrong. And I think he's getting so much of what's wrong in the world, and he's getting it right. But his solution is always wrong. His solution is always law. 
His solution is always do the right thing and the right, you'll get the right consequence, you'll get the right result. His solution, though, is never trust in the God who is. His solution is never trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. His solution is never God is in control. His solution is always 12 rules to, to shape your life by. He became famous because of writing that book. And Christians are flocking to him because he, he comes from a cultural perspective that they appreciate. And he's teaching the Bible not as a way to know the God who sent the Savior, but as a book of rules to shape a life. Now, now will, it, will it? Yes. I think many of the blessings that we experience as Americans today is because at some point in our history, we, we, our laws, our, the, the Constitution, not shaped by Christian people, but they still use Scripture to provide a framework for the Republic. Some of them were Christian, some of them weren't. Now, I think it does work. But when the culture decides that that's no longer worth it, no longer valid, we get what we got. And the solution, if you just want simply a comfortable life to live, is go back to the Bible and follow the rules. But that only works until the point you stand before the God who shows you you'll never measure You see, the Bible, what the Bible really is, it is, a, it is a book that shows us God at work from beginning to end, binding himself to his creatures out of grace, out of his good nature, demonstrating his greatness and his glory, proving to us, showing us time and again that he will fulfill his promises, that he is trustworthy, that he is the source, the sustenance, and the one who ultimately, eventually, will complete what he inaugurated in creation with new creation. So we're going to walk through these covenants. And, and the covenants, what are they? What, what, what are these covenants that God has made? Now, now, let me just say this. Not everyone agrees with everything I just said there. There are different ways to, to approach the Bible, different formats or different way, things to prioritize. Dispensationalists look at, look at it from a different perspective. They don't ignore the cover, covenants, but they don't prioritize them. But, I, but, but I've become convinced over, over the years of study that, that you cannot look at the Scripture rightly without understanding the covenants. And so for us as a church, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this. You're welcome to test this. You're welcome to go out and look at it. We can talk about those differences, different perspectives, more at length outside of this. But we're going to present this from, from start to finish. What are the covenants? God's covenant with creation. Again, this is a place. Not everyone agrees that there was a creation at or a covenant at creation. Because the word isn't used until we get to Noah. But just because the word isn't used doesn't mean the covenant's not there. And so we're going to study that next week. God's covenant with creation. Then we're going to look at Noah and God's covenant with Noah and his offspring. Then we're going to look at Abram, God's covenant with Abraham and, and, and his offspring. And then God's covenant with Israel and God's covenant with David and, and the new covenant in Christ. And that forms and that shapes the framework in which we see God working all the way through the biblical text always in covenant with the people with whom he's working and and this is just so significant not just because of a doctrinal framework or doctrinal perspective but because everyone who has ever lived or whoever will live 
whether they recognize it, whether they receive it, whether they accept it, whether they choose it or not, is governed in relationship to God under some covenant. God is dealing with the whole world, at least, at a minimum, under the covenant with creation that's reaffirmed in the covenant with Noah. Everyone he's made a promise to. Everyone he's bound himself to certain things, and he's called them in certain ways to live and act. Now we see that change, and we see his, his, the, as, as, the, as it progresses forward, as it moves forward, we see that begin to shift and change in his covenants with Abraham, with Israel, with David, and in Christ. It, it moves from being universal in nature, everyone who's ever lived, to a specific person, to a specific people, ultimately finding their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Everyone is faced with the reality of this, that God the Creator is the great and glorious covenant maker, and everyone exists under some covenant. And herein lies the tension, because God the Creator is also the righteous and merciful covenant maker. Now, going back to Genesis 2, so, so we, I, I've shown you how, how it's the same God all the way through, the, the covenants with, with, um, with Israel, that he, he's pointing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, back up that covenantal line, and, and the reality is, is that we see the tension exists already in chapters 2 and 3, because God covenants with the creation, he calls Adam and Eve to live a certain way, and what do they do? They disobey. Well, immediately, God's righteousness and his mercy it appears, would be at odds. Paul picks up on this tension when he writes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 26. He's, he's just shown us all the way through from chapter 1 that everyone's a sinner, that everyone deserves condemnation, that everyone deserves judgment. Uh, 3.21, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but then there's a way in which we can be counted righteous. And he writes in Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is righteous. And because he's righteous and no one else is, he has to be the just one. He has to be the righteous one. But he also is the one who has to justify people. So here's, here, for, okay, let me just break this out a little further. John Stott presents the tension in his book, The Cross of Christ. He, he writes it this way. The problem of forgiveness is constituted by the inevitable collision between divine perfection and human rebellion. Divine perfection, human rebellion, between God as he is and us as we are. The obstacle to forgiveness is neither our sin alone nor our guilt alone, but also the divine reaction in love and wrath towards guilty sinners. So how does a righteous God show mercy and remain righteous? How does a righteous God save a people who deserve to be condemned and remain righteous? righteous. He goes on to ask, how can he, God, save himself and satisfy himself at the same time? Uh, Peter Gentry and, and Stephen Willem ask a similar question in their book. How can God express his holiness without consuming us and his love without condoning our sin? Scripture's answer is that God himself must solve the problem, and he does that through the institution and movement of covenants. Over and over and over. He shows the inability of humankind to live up to the covenant expectation. And he finally fulfills the covenant himself so that... I mean, just go back, to, go back to the slide that has the covenants on it. God's covenant with creation, mankind fell. They failed. 
God's covenant with Noah, Noah's immediately drunk and, and naked in his tent and his son uh, uh, Ham comes in and jokes and laughs and condescends and ends up cursed. God's, God's co- covenant with Noah and mankind fails. God's covenant with Abraham, which is a unique covenant, and we'll look at it, we'll see it. It's going to take us a couple weeks to get through it. God doesn't even put, he puts Abraham to sleep and Abraham doesn't do anything. God just promises, I'm going to do this. Move forward and God covenants with Israel and Israel fails. God's covenant with David, David, Solomon, fail. But when we get to Christ and the new covenant in Christ, we see God in Christ fulfilling all of these promises to the true Israel, to the new and better David, to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through his seed, the whole world would be blessed. See, the the reality is that we can't even think or consider the tensions that are caused by our failure and God's righteousness, expecting his mercy without considering his covenant work. This is Scripture's answer to the problem, to the dilemma that, that starts immediately at the very beginning. But one more reason that this is significant is that God the Creator is the faithful and true covenant maker. God the Creator is the faithful and true covenant maker. And I told you at the beginning of this that, that I used those two, those, those two different definitions for a reason. And I did. Because one shows that there's promises, and the other shows that there's an attitude behind those promises, a a nature that motivates the keeping of those promises, faithful, loyal love, right? And so so when we begin to recognize this, this is where peace and rest reside. Now, God God is both righteous and he is both both merciful. But if, if he is not faithful and true, There's no reason to believe that when we get there, he'll forgive us. There's no reason to believe that if he is not faithful and true, there is no reason to believe that when we stand before him in judgment, that we won't hear him say, I never knew you, depart from me. But because he's faithful and true to his covenant promises, there is great rest, great peace that resides in this. And and, and so there's two words through the Hebrew text, and we'll see this come up over and over. We'll we'll have the opportunity to to recognize them in the text as as God is being referred to and his activity inside of the covenant is is referenced. There's two words, two Hebrew words that come up over and over. One of them you'll probably recognize because it gets talked about quite a bit, hesed. It's his covenant faithfulness. It's his loyal love. It, it's, it speaks of him being, be, be, uh, doing everything that he says he's going to do. He acts according to his nature. So he's righteous and he's merciful. He's righteous, he can't overlook sin, but he's merciful, so he pays the payment for sin himself. He is faithful, loyal in love, steadfast love, always, always, always. There was a quote, I can't remember where I read it from, read from it, that this is the ideal in mankind, right? Like that we're supposed to be loyal in love. But it's the reality in God. He demonstrates, has said, covenant faithfulness. He demonstrates loyal, steadfast love. The second word is emmet. Trustworthy, truthful, faithful, firm, secure. He is steady. He is stable. He is dependable. That these two words work together. In fact, one guy actually pointed out that it's almost impossible to, to discern 
what these two words mean by themselves because the pair of them together, it's like the, it's like the phrase by and large. If you take by by itself and large by itself, it doesn't mean the same thing as when they're put together. By and large means what? By and large. Come on, what does it mean? What? You know what it means. Everything, right? This is the big understanding of it. By and large doesn't mean that in its individual words. In the same way that when, faith, when, when Hesed and Emmet are put together, there is this certainty, this stability, this confidence that's established. Such that when God is dealing with, with, with Israel, so Israel, he, he, they are his covenant nation, right? His, his chosen people, and they've been led out of Egypt. They've, they've been led out, of, um, uh, uh, out into the wilderness. They're, they've made a covenant with God. You're going to be our God. We're going to be your people. Thank you. We praise you. We see your power. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and what do they do? Hey, Aaron, will you make us something so we can worship? So they bring him their jewelry. They bring Aaron their jewelry. Aaron puts the jewels into the furnace. And actually, the way Aaron tells the story later is this is what came out. Almost as if it was just like, oh, God brought this thing out for us to worship. And the Lord is angry. And he tells Moses up on the mountain, I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses prays for them, and God relents. Moses sees what's going on, and he throws down the Ten Commandments that God had written on, a, on, on two tablets. And he throws them and breaks them, and he ends up having to, to rescribe these. And, and in this process, he's, he's meeting with the Lord, and this is, what the, this is what happens. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. Elohim, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed and emet, steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God who's made covenant with people. Merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So what gives us confidence in this world? Is it that everything's going to our plan? Is it that everything's stable in our nation? Is it that our neighbors are, are not crazy? Is it that, or is it that we know the God who created and who entered into covenant with his people? You see, it's significant because if, if God isn't this God, if he isn't Yahweh Elohim, then when we read in Revelation 19.11, that then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, that's Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. If God isn't the God who covenants and is faithful and true to his covenant, then that verse should make us quake in our boots. But instead we can look to that verse with hope and expectation because he's not coming to judge and condemn us. He's coming to deliver us, his people, as he brings judgment to those who are outside the covenant. Covenants matter. They are significance. It's on the basis of God's faithfulness and trustworthy nature that we have so much hope and that we can have peace. God, the creator, is the great and glorious, righteous and merciful, faithful and true covenant maker. And because he is, chaos can ensue all around us and we can walk in peace and rest. Because he is, our toil 
in this fallen world is no longer vain, but can be exercised with fruit that produces fruit that lasts for all eternity. There's so much to celebrate because our great God has made covenant with us. Let's pray.